Hey, Dwarf Hope family. My name is Michelle Van Bogart. I was thinking about how one downside of not having masks is that we can't like hide as easily when we like skip a, skip a lyric. <laughs> when we like accidentally miss it, like when we had the mask, it was cool, but like now we can't hide it. Um, so this morning we're going to be in Psalm 51. If you want to turn your Bibles or turn them on to Psalm 51. To the choir master, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilt guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Michelle. Well, um, I assume most of you probably know the story, uh, but there's there's a, a tragic story in uh, in Israel's history and King David's history. You know, David was the greatest, the greatest king Israel would ever know, had ever known, of course, until, until Jesus, uh, the true king. And, and David's, David's life was marked by challenge and opposition to his coming to the throne, but, but he was blessed by God, and he was, he was celebrated by God. He was called a man after God's own heart. He had a deep intimacy with God. But there was this event kind of in the middle of his life it totally changed the trajectory of his kingdom. Before this event, everything was on the rise, everything was looking good, everything was ascending, and then after this event, his, his life kind of fell into shambles. The whole character of, of his kingship looked different after this. And this was this event that, that as Michelle mentioned, David wrote this psalm, Psalm 51, immediately following this event. And it was the event of David and Bathsheba. And the story is, essentially, David sees this woman from his palace. He sees her bathing. He says, I want her. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. He impregnates her. And then he has this big problem on his hands. 
um, what am I going to do? And, and her husband was, was a soldier in Israel's army. What David ends up doing is scheming and concocting this plan to have her husband sent to the front lines so it would be guaranteed that he'd be killed. And he does get killed. He does get killed. Uh, and David is, you know, kind of living his life now with having taken her as one of his wives and, and they're going to have this child. And Nathan the prophet comes to David and basically prophesies to him this story of this horrible man who does this horrible act. And when David, David is, th- through this detached lens, he's able to say, that's horrible. Like, God needs to bring justice on this man. And Nathan says, it's you. It's you who've done this thing. And this story, if you go back and read it, um, it, it ticks all the boxes for us. It's like the most powerful man kind of in the, in the nation, easily, by far, sort of taking this woman unjustfully. He, it's, there's just adultery, uh, unbridled lust. Then there's this intrigue of him literally having her husband murdered, killed, so that he doesn't have to live with like the complex shame of this situation having impregnated her. It's horrible. It's a horrible story. And uh, sometimes the, the way the scriptural narratives are written, they, they, it almost sounds, reads a little bit dispassionately, and you go, man, what, what is this? But make no mistake, this was an affront to God. It was an affront to his role as king over Israel. And it was horrible. It was horrible. It was, it was a deep and sincere and horrific act of sin, uh, a horrific misuse of his power and position. Uh, and he rightly deserved to be under the judgment and justice of God for it. Today's psalm that Michelle just read for us, Psalm 51, it's the, it's the poem that, 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 that David composed right after being confronted with the gravity of what he had done. What is David going to do? How is he going to approach God immediately after doing something like this? That's what, that's what we're looking at today. So today's, today, as we've been in this series, feeling and praying with the Psalms, the, the, the constant refrain has been that in the Psalms we find these ancient but trustworthy and, and, and dependable guides for how not only to, to process our emotion individually, but how to bring it before the Lord of the universe. And I, I've been shocked even. I, I mean, I'm Josh and I are the ones who plan this series, but every week as I'm digging into this, I'm finding myself shocked at, at just what God is availing himself to receive from us. Like how much he's willing to just take the darkest of our junk and invite us to bring it to him. And the way God responds. And so today we're going to do this again with guilt, perhaps shame. And I know just mentioning those words in church might flare up some like PTSD for people, like potentially re-traumatize you. I promise there's good news at the end of this sermon. But what is guilt? And specifically, I, you probably heard a lot of this kind of in pop psychology and pop culture. Um, specifically, how does, how does guilt differentiate itself from shame? And these, these, are, uh, these are good categories, I think. They don't necessarily cleanly map onto the biblical usage of these terms in every case, but I, I think there's something helpful there. So guilt, guilt comes with the feeling of recognition that I did something wrong. And you don't have to be a Christian to feel guilt. Plenty of non-Christians who don't have categories of like sin and guilt before God and this kind of thing 
to feel guilty about something. I did something wrong, I regret it, I feel bad, I'm anxious about it, whatever. Then there's shame, which, which often gets described as not just I did something bad, but fundamentally I am bad. And not only am I bad, but everyone knows it. Or if everyone did know it, no one could ever love me. I'm not worthy of anyone's love or, or trust. I'm not worthy of being dignified. So guilt has to do with things I've done, choices I've made. Shame often has to do with the, the, the feeling of who I am at the most fundamental level. There was a, uh, my wife reminded me of this. There was this, um, this professor that she had, and then I, I ended up um, kind of going to some trainings that he put on, but he has this great GPS illustration to, to uh, illustrate this. His point is, okay, imagine a GPS. We've all got one, Google Maps or whatever, it's telling you the directions. Um, when you miss a turn, a typical GPS would say something like, wrong turn, recalculating. Like you missed the turn, recalculate. It's kind of guilt. Like you did something wrong, like, no, we have, to, we have to adjust, we have to do something different. Shame, a, a shaming GPS would be if the GPS said, you missed your turn, you stupid idiot. <laughs> You're a moron. No one could ever love you because of what you've done. <laughs> Good luck living this down. That's a shaming GPS. <laughs> GPSs are happy to guilt us. I'm glad they don't shame us currently. We'll see how the technology evolves. Uh, that's a good illustration. Um, and, and guilt and shame are things that we all feel. If we're honest with ourselves, you, you might be guilty or, sh or, or, or carrying shame about something right now as you sit here. Um, and it's complicated too, but before we even wade into this topic, I wanna, I wanna talk about two errors, I guess, in how we think about guilt that we need to just mention, and then we're going to have to kind of set them aside because that's not really what the sermon's about, but I think we would, it'd be a mistake not to mention them. W one error with, with related to guilt and shame is, is first, like, we, we are capable of believing that we aren't guilty of something when we actually are, right? All the time. We, we, we don't feel guilty, we don't carry a sense of guilt, but, but we actually are guilty of something. We have harmed someone, we have sinned, we have betrayed God or neighbor in some significant way. And our, our culture makes it easy to embrace this error uh, because it, 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 the messages we get repeated so often are, you do you. Uh, follow your bliss, follow your heart, or even the, the phrase, your truth, which, which is this crazy epistemological claim that, that truth is somehow constructed by the individual. Um, it's absolute moral relativism from person to person. That's kind of the water we swim in. Like, you, what, whatever's right for you is what's right. Just go do it. One of the problems with this is that actually no one, almost no one actually believes this when you get to the bottom of it. Because no one can actually live that way. As if everyone truly is a moral compass unto themselves, unencumbered. Eventually, in our culture, people do step on landmines. And then it, it's like, there was no concept of guilt, but now you've got a guilt that can never be removed, you know? And you're beyond the pale of forgiveness somehow. Um, the Bible suggests, contrary to this, that actually all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can reject that or you can believe that. That's, just, that's what the Bible claims. Uh, and it claims that, if, of course, if God is who he says he is, then it does us no good to pretend 
that we haven't sinned or that we're incapable of sinning or that we don't bear guilt to some degree. The objective question isn't whether we are guilty on the biblical worldview. It's what we're going to do with that guilt. So, but if you're in this boat uh, on, on something in your life, um, at any point you need to be convinced of your guilt. If you're guilty of something but you don't recognize, you don't see it, the, the first step is actually becoming aware. Like, oh, actually, you, you are guilty of A, B, C, or D. The second, the second thing we'll have to just mention, and again, just put it aside, is, is that we can, we can have this air of believing we are guilty of something when we're not guilty. That happens a lot too. There are legitimate instances when we experience the feeling of guilt, maybe even the feeling of shame, illegitimately. Like sometimes something, I mean, so, sometimes something as simple as, as sharing a scriptural truth with someone, even lovingly, graciously, but honestly, results in pain or conflict in a relationship. And you might feel guilt. Have I done something wrong? I feel guilty. But you haven't done anything wrong. Or, or even more severely, in countless cases, victims of abuse carry immense burdens of guilt and shame a lot of the time. And, and perhaps some of us in this room right now are victims of abuse and we're carrying guilt that, let me be very clear, it's not yours to carry. It's just not. So if you're in this boat with something in your life, at least on this particular issue or whatever it is, you need to be convinced of your innocence in this case. Not innocent of everything at all times, but, but in this case. So I just want to mention those. What, what, what today's psalm is focused on is when we have legitimate guilt that we're aware of, what do we do with that before God? But I just wanted to lay this out there that there are these other complicating factors that would be worthy, worthy subjects for sermons of another day. Uh, but that's not where we're going today. Um, because those things, those things are live realities in probably all of our lives at one point or another. But genuine guilt... And then tragically, the, the shame that often accompanies that guilt often make us want to hide from everyone. They want to make us hide from our friends. You want to hide from your spouse. And, and ultimately, most of us probably want to hide from God. We don't want to be seen. We don't want to be exposed. We somehow think that stuffing these feelings down is the key to peace. But this psalm, and others like it, a whole bunch of others like it, reveal that hiding, trying to hide in our, in our guilt, is exactly the opposite of what God would have us do. It's the opposite of the path to healing and peace. And it, to, to try to hide our sin or our guilt is paradoxically the only way we'll be sure to never be free of it. That's what we're going to see. So how do we take a step away from hiding and take a step toward the light of bringing it into relationship with God in the middle of of experiencing guilt. Well, let's turn to Psalm 52. Let's turn to Psalm 52. So we've already talked about the circumstance. This was a legitimately crushing moment of guilt in David's life. And he's going to do a number of things. The first thing we see him do in the first two verses is appeal to the character of God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. David begins this prayer asking for God to show mercy to him, to blot out, to literally like take, take, a, you know, take a pen and mark over what's there, to blot it out of existence, his transgressions, to wash him, to cleanse him. That's what he's asking. That's what this psalm is about. It's God, remove my sin from me, remove my guilt from me. I don't want it hanging over me anymore. But notice that the first thing he does is couch that request in a declaration. Maybe you could even think of it as David like forcing himself to remember in the moment the character of the God that he serves. He says, he, he says do this because of who you are, because of namely your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. And this language recalls Exodus 34, this great self-definition from God. When he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He's a God of mercy, of grace, of slowness to anger, of loyal love, of faithfulness, of forgiveness, but then also, equally crucially, a God of justice. So for David, fully aware of his guilt, he can only make the request he's making because he knows that this is who God is. Is this the God that you know? Is this the God that you pray to, if you, if you do in fact pray? Because if we don't believe him to be full of forgiveness and mercy, we will never bring our, our guilt to him. Because we're, what we assume is he's just going to crush us with it. But he has shown himself time and time again to be exactly who he says he is. And so we do well to follow David here. To, as we begin to, as, if, when we experience guilt, to infuse our prayers with the declaration, the reminder of who God is. And remember, there is nowhere we see who God is more clearly than in the incarnate Jesus. What is God like? Look at Jesus again and again and again. And that is the one that we bring our guilt to. We bring our sin to. It's only because that's who he is that we can do it. If he's not that, then... It's a hopeless proposition. Well, then he moves uh, into just straight-up confession. He's already acknowledged his sin, but these next few verses kind of highlight it. He says, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So in these verses, David confesses his sin. He acknowledges that he's done severe wrong. He tells God that God has the right to judge him. He states that, that even that sin isn't a recent phenomenon in his life. It goes all the way back to his conception, like this powerful image. He said he was, he was even conceived in sin. With incredible humility, David is acknowledging that this sin, this, this thing with Bathsheba and this murder, it actually just ultimately flows naturally from, from who he's always been. It's incredible humility there. And then he says something really interesting. Some of y'all, your ears might have kind of 
shot up when, when, uh, when we read this, but he says, against you and you only have I sinned. What's up with that? Because it seems like he's sinned against a few people here, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, it, it, doesn't that strike you as some of the most over-spiritualized, like, oh, don't worry about them. Against you only, Lord, have I, have I sinned. It kind of struck me that way the first time I read it. Uh, wasn't this sin with Bathsheba egregiously, obviously, horribly, like against both Bathsheba and Uriah, if not others as well? Of course it was. And, and I seriously doubt that David was denying that, but what he's noting is that his sin, this sin, like all sin, was fundamentally rebellion against God. Tim Keller, I like the way he puts it in his little devotional on this. He says, how can we say that when, when he has killed, how can he say this when he has killed someone? It's because sin is like treason. If you try and overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you'll be tried for treason because you've betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. If you hadn't first betrayed God, you would never have betrayed the individual. That's what he's getting at. So he, he even goes on to, to paint this picture of being unable to let the sins leave his mind. He says they're ever before him. These sins are ever before him. The sin is dogging him. It's haunting him. It's burdening him daily. Have you ever felt that before? Unconfessed sin has this way of eating away at us, and eventually it eats away at our relationships, both with God or even with, even with our human friends or, or, or family or whatever. When you harbor that sin and it's eating you up inside, but you can't actually share it, people see. They know that something's wrong. They know that something's amiss. They know that something's going on with you. But, but if you're just refusing to let them into it, all that can do is create distance. All it does is create this in increasingly difficult to bridge divide. That's what hiding sin does. It does it with people. It does it with God as well. So he describes that reality for us. But then thirdly, David, David prays the hope of, of a cleansing and restoration. I'll just, just reread this here. Verses 6 through 15. He says, Behold, you delight in truth and in inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, sinners to return to you. Del deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David just lists what he wants. He wants wisdom, he wants purging, he wants cleansing, he wants washing, joy, gladness, blotting out of his sin, a clean heart, renewal of the spirit, God's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence, the joy of salvation, a willing spirit, deliverance from blood guilt, praise on his lips. This is what I want, Lord. I don't want to wallow in this guilt. And then fourthly, he, 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 he summarizes the key to all of this. Verses 16 and 17, he says, Four, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David acknowledges a crucial truth that God will not delight in sacrifice, be pleased with a burnt offering. He's saying you can't buy God's favor with work. There's nothing you can do. Outward acts of righteousness, they, they can't undo what's already been done. They can't unharm the person you've already harmed. They can't magically mend the relationship with God that you've, you've, you've hindered. You can't buy his favor. Even the sacrifices explicitly outlined in the Old Covenant, in the books of Moses, he says it's, it's meaningless apart from what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He says, this is the key to receiving the mercy David's asking for. Genuinely repentant, sincere, heartbroken return to God. Not faith in what we can do to make it right with God. Oh God, just let me do this. There's, we uh, studied the book of Micah over the winter. And there was this passage where, uh, in Micah 6, where, where uh, basically, Micah was speaking on behalf of the people, and they were saying, let us give more sacrifice, and then we'll, we'll, we'll give even our best calves. And, and it, it keeps escalating until it's even like human sacrifice that they're willing to offer. It's this dark, disturbing passage. And God comes back and says, no, that's not what I'm after. And essentially says something along these lines. But that's the treadmill that we so often want to get on. Just let me do this thing for you. God, just let me do it. Let me just go make it right. It's just have a broken heart. Just earnestly desire me and earnestly desire the end of this thing that you're doing. That's what it's about. Not faith in what we can do to make it right with God, but faith in His willingness to show mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And David is even demonstrating this to God here, now, genuinely, in this psalm. And then the psalm ends with two verses that are kind of some application uh, and they, they're, they're not as applicable to us, but he ends with this. He says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and the bulls will be offered on your altar. And that's the end of the psalm. Essentially takes his personal situation, and then he applies it to, to the nation. Essentially says, May this be so of all the people of the whole kingdom that we would turn from our sin, find this sincerity of repentance with you, and then you would restore us. That's what he asks for. So that's the psalm. That's the psalm. And David didn't know it then. And I know this is probably starting to sound like a broken record because this is where every one of these sermons go. It's, it's, it's hard for them not to. But, but David didn't know it then, but we know it now. The reason God can forgive our sin freely is not because God didn't take it seriously. It's not because he just waves it away with a no big deal or a, hey, you do you. It's all, hey, it's all good. We do that. Like even, even when, I, I've found this, like anytime I've wronged someone and I've tried to like make apology, I almost always get met with a like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Do you do that to people? Man, I am sorry. I did this. Hey, no big deal. Oh, it's fine. We're, we're so hesitant to like actually acknowledge like, no, that really did hurt me. But you know what? I forgive you. Those are hard words to say for some reason. God doesn't do that. No big deal. Hey, ah, it's fine. It's 
it's fine. And that would be actually horrible if that was how God was. If God could look at something, like look, think of the great human tragedies of our world, which again are just sin, amplified and given opportunity to flourish. He said, oh, it's fine. Can you imagine that? It would be a cruel joke of a universe if God was like that. It really would be. But that's not God's response. He hadn't done it yet, but he had, and his eternal plan already had set the gears in motion to take all of this stuff, all sin, its consequences, its due penalties, its punishments, its violence, its isolation, its death, into himself. Part of the power of the cross is that it shows God's radical commitment, both to forgiveness, to forgive the sinner, but also to uphold genuine justice. That's where the two meet most profoundly, is him taking that judgment on himself, not waving it away, but absorbing it. Taking the punishment in our place. Jesus on the cross is the place in our place where he shows his love and all of its complexity and goodness. Hebrews tells us that Jesus' death was a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. 1 John tells us that he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. If you have received the free gift, everything necessary to deal with your sin, your guilt, your shame was finished by Jesus on the cross. Everything. Everything. There's nothing to be added to that work. And we could sum this all up with one of the most beautiful statements in the book of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Not an inch of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do Christians still need to pray prayers like Psalm 51? These prayers of confession like David did? Because you're going to sin, I'm going to sin. Well, yeah. But not for salvation, but for our intimate, preserving the intimate relationship with God. Listen to David describe the experience of life before and after he confessed to God. This is from Psalm 32. Different psalm, same David. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. You ever feel that? When you refuse to confess, either when you've wronged a person, you've got something restored there, or with God himself, you refuse to confess that you're drying up, everything's getting brittle, everything's getting painful, it's getting heavy, it's building up. But then he goes on, verse 5, but I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Or listen to John in 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all iniquity. Unconfessed sin wastes us away. We think that we're hiding something or protecting something or protecting someone, or I don't know why we justify all this stuff. But it wastes us away, and we deceive ourselves on some level. It's a burden. 
But bringing that sin and guilt into God's gracious light brings us the experience. We get to re-experience all over again His forgiveness. Yes, even this God wants to say to you. Even that thing, even that thing that you have never told a living soul on this planet because it's just too heavy, it's too dark, it's too disappointing, it's too crushing, you could never share it with someone. God says, yes, that too, I forgive. My grace is sufficient even for that. Whatever thing is crushing you, crushing you, says that too. That too. And again and again and again, you get to experience that relational restoration. He's already forgiven. You get to experience it. Him saying, yes, you thought not that, but yes, even that. Or you were afraid not that, but yes, even that. That's the power of confession for the Christian. Who do we think we're hiding from anyway? He knows. He knows everything. And he's sitting there with mercy and wide open arms like the father in the parable of the prodigal son just waiting for us to come so he can embrace us. What what do we think is going to happen if we confess? Only that. (laughs) Only that. So, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know to what degree you're carrying around guilt. But you need to hear there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't know if you're carrying shame that says you are somehow unlovable or something, but the God of the universe would die for you to be with you. He says you're of infinite value because you're, you're worth the life of his son. No matter what. Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted him, you are spotless and guilt-free before the God of the universe. You are forgiven. You believe that? If you don't believe that, like, I don't know what we're doing here. (laughs) I don't know why we're singing. I don't know why you're listening to me yammer on about this stuff. You're forgiven, and more than that, you are loved beyond comprehension, and more than that, you're given a new identity as beloved child of God, adopted son or daughter of the king, given a new identity as a new creation, as a saint, all because of Jesus. Therefore, confess. Like David, knowing who he is, clear-eyedly knowing what you've done, but knowing more than that, who he is. And you can continue day in and day out to taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't hide. Don't hide. But bring it to him and taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen?